We're in our second week of a study on Luke chapter 15. Last week we spent a great deal of time focusing on the people that were gathered around Jesus, the situation of which prompted his telling of these parables, just verses 1 through 3. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. And what was it they were muttering? This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus was creating a community that the religious leaders of his day, most of whom I believe were very well intended. We downplay the noble ideas of the Pharisees because we know they were the villains in the gospel play. They were the ones that couldn't see past their own rules to see who Jesus really was. And in the end, their rules caused them to call for Jesus' death as a heretic. And so, in in effect, they they deserve that tag. But yet, I would suggest that the Pharisees represent the philosophy by which most moral people live their lives. And it's essentially this. I can be good enough if I just work hard enough. What they saw Jesus doing was creating a spiritual community that seemed to just throw all that aside because here Jesus was, and he wasn't just having these people that were the social outcasts of morality, of religion, the tax collectors and the sinners. They were not only coming to see Jesus, he was welcoming them. To welcome in the original language meant to invite into friendship. And to eat with them meant to engage in community. You see, the Pharisees knew what Jesus was about, and it really troubled them. And it was out of this situation, it says, then Jesus told them these parables. Now, we're going to skip forward from the two that we looked at last week, and we're going to pick up with the third parable, that of the what we call the prodigal or the lost son. There are really two lost sons, as we're going to learn in the weeks ahead. But even then, the parable might better be referred to as the gracious father. I'm going to read the whole parable for you today. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly, 
Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. For us as Westerners, we would most likely miss, and I think we have typically missed, the most outrageous part of this story at its beginning. In the Middle Eastern culture, those who were listening to Jesus understood that what this story was primarily about was the disillusion of a family. This was a family being torn apart in a way that went against everything that was ideal in Middle Eastern culture. So it, it, it helps us as we introduce this, and that's all this really is. This is the introduction to what will be several more weeks on this parable. It helps us to see this as an assault on community, especially with the broader context that what we're learning through these parables is that Jesus through grace, is creating a type of spiritual community that the world has never seen before. There are two assaults on this family. The first is the younger brother, and it begins where he comes to his father and says, give me my share. Now, in the Middle Eastern culture, the oldest son always got a double portion of the inheritance. In this case, there were just two. And what that meant was the father had to give the son a third of his estate. Typically, inheritance is something that only comes when you die. The fact that this young person would ask this was outrageous. It was an assault on the father. It was assault on the family, its resources, and on its good family name. One commentator wrote this, in the Middle Eastern culture, to ask for the inheritance while the father is alive is to wish him dead. It was a very patriarchal society. So the father's honor and standing, his ability to be held in high regard, depended centrally on the fabric of his family. In short, the request ripped apart the family. It was a relational and economic act of violence against the family's very integrity. So that's the first and most easily seen assault on this family. The second assault comes from the older brother. At some point, as we read, and we'll explore more in the weeks ahead, this younger brother comes home. 
and the father kills the fattened calf. Now, meat itself was a rare thing in meals in their day. The fattened calf was a once-in-a-decade celebration. This was huge. When you brought out the fattened calf, it wasn't just a family celebration. It was a community celebration. Just like in the first couple of parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin, the finder invites all of his friends to come and party. And in the same way, this father does that. He opens his home to the whole community because the son that was lost to him is found. And at the moment of the father's greatest victory... Another son comes in and threatens the family. He refuses to go into the party that celebrates the very restoration of the family that he was a part of and someday would take leadership of. He sets outside and refuses to go in. And he forces the father, the patriarch, the one who was always to be sought out, he forces that father in front of the whole town to leave the party and go out and try to persuade his son to come in. And as far as we know, based on where Jesus leaves the story, and we'll we'll talk about why he left it so open-ended in a couple of weeks. As far as we know, the son never went back in. The thing I want you to understand is that at the core of both of these assaults is the same root issue. And it's the root issue that threatens all of us in terms of our community with our Heavenly Father. In this metaphor, this extended metaphor, which is what a parable is, of course, the earthly father represents our Heavenly Father. And what Jesus is trying to help them understand isn't that there's one way to be lost. He's trying to help them understand that there's two ways to be lost to the Father. One way is through licentiousness. The other way is through legalism. One way is completely irreligious. And the other way to be lost is through religion itself. See, it's really critical that we understand that idea going forward because that was exactly who Jesus had sitting before him, the religious and the irreligious. And he wanted the Pharisees to understand their need for a Savior just as much as he wanted the sinners to see that grace was available. And at the core of both types of lostness is the same issue. And it's your and my issue, too. It's at the core of all sin. It's at the core of all decisions that are contrary to God's plan for our life. The term I'm going to use may unsettle you, and it may seem ancient and irrelevant today, but trust me, it's quite relevant. The term is idolatry. Go back to the Decalogue that God gives to the children of Israel, this list of ten things that are to guide our moral choices written in stone, not ten suggestions. The first one is this, I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. And every other commandment that flows from that is putting something else ahead of God himself in our life. See, what God wants is to have and to own our greatest passions. That's what it really means to worship God, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's why the psalmist can write, delight in the Lord, and then he will give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because if I get that first thing right, that first commandment, no other passions, no other priorities, no other wants, no other possessions, no other 
positions of status, no other experiences, no other people, no matter how important they are in my life, if I can get the fact that none of them hold my passion more than God, then he aligns my heart to his will. See, get the first one right and everything else follows. Where does idolatry fit into the sun? It didn't go off and worship a different God. No, but what did he show when he said, give me what's mine so I can leave? What he betrayed was that he loved the stuff that the Father owned, the things of the Father, more than he loved the Father. It wasn't the relationship with the Father that mattered. That wasn't his delight. It was the father's stuff. And there must have been a point in his life when he started counting down his time and thought, now is when I want to spend this money. And it reached a point where that became more important to him than continuing to honor his father, and he made his choice. And he made it in a very dramatic way that we can look at and say, I would never do that. But in fact, we do. We all do it. Every time what you want in life forces you to make a choice that you know is contrary to what a life that was devoted to God is, then what you're saying is that thing is worshiped by you more than God himself. Every time you choose a path that does not honor God, that does not seek what a life in love with him would seek, you follow the path of the prodigal. See, it is at the core of all brokenness and fallenness. It is. Now, how does that play into the older brother? Well, we'll spend a lot more time talking about that. But what happened? The older brother has obeyed, and he says it. I have never disobeyed you. It's easy to look at those that have fallen out of, away from God through obvious acts of disobedience, but this is a far more subtle thing. Legally, this son could say he has never done anything by action that has dishonored his father. He has worked for the good of his father. Why then is he an idolater? Because he comes back and he looks. Now all that's left is his. Remember the father even says that. My son, all that I have now is yours. What he saw when he came in was against everything he believed he deserved. Now his possessions were being used. That fattened calf, that belonged to him. The father had honored a son that had dishonored him. And so what the older son betrays in this moment is that he too, like the younger son, was doing everything he did for the things of the father, not for the love of the father. That is the path of religion that Jesus is addressing when he tells this story to the Pharisees. It is very important that we understand it because it helps us, again, get the primary idea of these parables, and that is the gospel is neither about religion nor is it about irreligion. The gospel is about something altogether different. Let's look now at how the Father responds to this because I think we have to understand it. We'll, we'll, we'll look at the father's response when the son returns later on, but let's just look at the father's response to the request. Now, 
the listeners there would have been astounded at this younger son's request. But they would have been even more astounded at how the father answered. Because in this society, for a son to essentially say, I wish that you were dead and to scorn the family, any Middle Eastern patriarchal society would have required that the father drive out that son in dishonor, strike him, force him out of the house. But instead, what we see is this very simple phrase. So he divided his property between them in verse 12. That's very dramatic. There's a word that the writer uses here. It's the Greek word bios. And as it sounds, it's the word for life. What Jesus is literally saying here is that the father divided his life because his life was in the land. So what you see is this incredible picture of a father who lets his very life be torn apart. And not just his possessions, but his standing, his well-being, everything that he had built up that gave him value and honor in this society. He surrendered. It's astounding. It would be unheard of for a father to react that way. Why did he do it? Why does Jesus say that this father, who represents our heavenly father, went to that extent? Think about this. Think about this. The father bore the cost of the sin of the son in order to make possible future restoration. Just think about that. Think about if he had acted in the traditional way, if he had counted his son dead. Why was it that the son could say at some point when he came to his senses, I'm going to get up and go to my father's house because the father had left that path open because the father took the pain, the father took the punishment, the father allowed his life to be torn asunder for the possibility of grace, for the possibility of restoration. That was impossible to conceive. Religion could never allow that. Irreligion could never picture it. And yet that's exactly what Jesus said this community is about. That's grace. Now, just for a few minutes, I want to look at the moment when the lost son, as the passage says, comes to his senses. Because in this little statement that he tells himself, and prepares to go and tell his father, is a powerful set of lessons on repentance. What is it that triggers the grace of God to bring reconciliation in our life? It's repentance. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and went to his father. This is a beautiful picture of what repentance is all about. And we're going to learn it by looking at three things he did right. And then by one thing, he got wrong. But repentance is at the heart of everything. You know, when Martin Luther did his 95 thesis on the Wittenberg door and launched the Reformation, you know what thesis number one was? For the believer, life is all about repentance. 
Repentance for the Christian is not just supposed to be something we do in order to get ourselves right with God, then we move forward. Repentance is a state of mind that allows us to perpetually live within the grace of God. It's an honesty of who we are. As a society, as a race, we find that the hardest thing to do. Lord Byron put it this way, the weak alone repent. Society sees people admitting that they've done wrong as an act of weakness. Luther sought exactly the opposite. He saw someone who could repent as a sign of great strength. It doesn't come easy for us to repent, but repentance actually inaugurates or initiates the coming of the grace of God into our life and launches us into the life that God has for us. That's how important true repentance is is. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about this. Just just write this verse down and I'll read it for you. Verse uh, 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. I want to contrast the way some of us think we're admitting our flaws to what true godly repentance is. Let's look at it through these three things real quick. The very first thing we see that the son does is that he comes to his senses. That's an interesting statement because you don't come to your senses by an act of the will. When you get knocked out, you don't decide you're going to wake up. Coming to your senses is something that happens to you. Think of it this way. We're going along. We're making bad choices, some we know about, most of them we're not admitting or paying attention to, and when we allow ourselves to live according to those broken pieces in us, we're living in a way that rubs against the fabric of life that God intended for us. And then what happens is stress occurs, and eventually we find ourselves in circumstances where those flaws in us come out, and we have an opportunity to come to our senses. And that is so important that we do that. The most harmful flaws are those that we can't or won't see, and it's the circumstances in life that bring them to light and force us to see it. You know, the human heart runs on denial the way cars run on gas. And I'm going to tell you, I know more Christians that have a hard time holding that mirror up to themselves than neighbors who aren't Christians. We are proud. We wear masks. We pretend we're fine because somewhere along the line we're taught that to be a Christian is to be getting better and better and better, and we cannot even admit to ourselves the brokenness inside us, and we are willing to destroy churches, to leave churches, to break friendships. We are willing to ruin other people's reputations even and say they're the ones that were wrong to keep ourselves from just looking up in the mirror and saying, how did I get here? Seasons of change don't come at your command or your convenience. Circumstances bring them to you, and then you need to respond. He came to his senses. We need to be willing to do that. Second thing he does, and this this phrase actually has both of the other two pieces. He came to his father and begins by saying, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And those are the final two pieces about repentance that we see here. The first is the vertical aspect of repentance. I have sinned against heaven. If I cannot recognize the impact of my actions on God, 
then I'm not really repenting. What I'm doing is I'm regretting. Regret says, I now have experienced and I have to come to terms with the impact of all my bad decisions on me. And I've got to admit that I've failed. And many of us think at that point that we've reached the state of repentance. And no, we haven't. We've just reached the stage of regret. And admitting that we've failed is in order to make us feel better. So you see, what we call repentance can be as much an act of idolatry and selfishness as denying our faults altogether, because what we're doing is trying to fix what hurts about our situation in us, you see? And if we do that, it's not godly repentance. I want to read a quote from Stephen Sharnock, a great Puritan theologian, and he wrote this, to contrast the difference between legalistic confession or regret and godly confession. A legalistic consideration of sin arises from a consideration of God's justice, chiefly. But a gospel conviction of sin rises from a sense of God's goodness. A legalistically convicted person cries out, I have exasperated a power that is as roaring of a lion. I've provoked one that is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, whose word can tear up the foundation of the world. But a gospel-convicted person says, I have incensed a goodness like the dropping of dew. I have offended a God that has the deportment of a friend. You see, religion causes regret. And religious confession seeks to avoid punishment. And that's self-serving. When you hear people preaching the wrath of God and you see people turning just because of the wrath of God, it's possible that within that whole thing there is no honest repentance actually occurring because it's all about how I can avoid God's punishment. Real repentance isn't just about hating what sin has caused in my life. It's about actually hating the sin. And it doesn't come from fearing the judgment of God but contrasting our actions as his children with the goodness and gloriousness of God. It's the difference between regretting, which says, I'm going to get it, and repentance that says, look at this good and loving God. How could I treat him like this? I've not only broken the rules, I've broken his heart. And when I can get there, that's when real change happens. And the third area is that confession that I've not only sinned against heaven, but I've sinned against you, Dad. And you notice there's no qualifications, and that's the third thing. Real repentance first begins with coming to our moral senses. Second, viewing that through the lens of a loving and good God and what our sin has done to him. And then the third thing is just owning it without qualification, Notice he doesn't come and say, Dad, I have sinned against heaven and against you, but if you had the big brother I've got, you'd leave home too. Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you, but you know, I'm young. (laughs) We sow our wild oats. He doesn't do that. He just simply owns it. Let me ask a question. Have you ever, based on that, truly repented? Something to think about, isn't it? 
There's a fourth thing he gets wrong that actually teaches us just as much about honest repentance as the three things he gets right. He plans to come to the Father and say, please make me one of your hired hands. You see, the household servants lived on the grounds, but the hired hands lived in town. They, they received a paycheck for what they did. And what the son was suggesting was that he work for his dad and pay back what he owed. Now, this is really, really big. This is really important. He never even gets to that before the father extends his grace and gives him reconciliation. Why? Because that wouldn't have made any difference at all. And so often when we think about repenting, we think about restitution. There are so many people that say, well, I'll come to Jesus when I get my act together. When I get worthy of it, I come to Jesus and I say, I'm going to pay you back. How many of us have found us, ourselves in those situations where life's a mess and we find ourselves bargaining with God? <laughs> God, if you'll get me out of this mess, I promise I'll never do it again. If you get me out of this mess, I'll go to church every week as though a holy, loving God's up in heaven going, that's a deal I can't refuse. You got it. <laughs> the point is that he could never have paid back his father. And that's why even though he thought that was what was required, the father knew it wasn't even necessary to say because he paid the price already. Father, I thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you that when we come to you truly broken in spirit and contrite, when we recognize that our lives have been not only a breaking of your law, but a breaking of your heart and your goodness and love and aspirations for us, that we can truly begin to enter into grace and be restored when we fully own it. To say that we can't repay it. That's why the cross was necessary. That's why Jesus gave everything up. He paid the price we could never pay so that we could experience the grace that we could never deserve. Father, teach us that path. Help us to be a people, as Luther said, who live within this openness and honesty of ourselves so that grace rules, grace abounds, grace transforms. And the gospel is what this community is about. In Jesus' name.